This message is brought to you by this excellent church. We excel at reshaping people's values and reconciling men to God. You're about to hear peace and preach. Be blessed. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you, Lord, because you are here with us. Guiding our thoughts, guiding our words. Thank you, Lord, because your spirit is at work inside of us to grow us in our knowledge of you, to strengthen our faith in you, to open our eyes to know you better and to know you more, that we might be more effective unto you, Lord. Father, we give you thanks. Thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Praise God. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. All right, everybody. Welcome to church. Please have your seats. going to have an interesting service today. Praise God. So, today we're talking about early church heresies, that right? Yes, so, um, so please let's post it on the Telegram page so that those who are not aware can join us and um, they can also benefit. Praise Jesus. So, early church heresies right and um, this is going to be very interesting um, I found the I found the I, fi- I find this topic very interesting every, ever, ever since I first got to apologies thank you ever since I first got to know about the early church heresies and stuff I've always found it a very interesting topic um the early church fathers and the apolo- and the apologists the early church apologists and um the work they did to contend for the faith and um defend against those early, early church um early heresies it's very interesting i found it very interesting and um i find it very interesting and um, i think it's very instrument it's very instructive for us today studying and you know thinking our context where we have a lot of doctrinal debates and all that. You know, I, I think it's something very, very instructive that all of us can really benefit from. Praise God. First thing I would like to say is that for the church, for the Christian church traditionally, the way we sling the word heresy at each other nowadays is not, it's not the way it was always used. Right? Are we together? The word heresy is not something that you just sling at every doctrinal dispute that you have. You can't just say, um, I defy with someone and understanding, no matter how much you are confident that you are in the right and all that. You don't just throw people the word heresy around. There are two things that qualify a person as a heretic, that really church, the early church fathers used the word heresy. And it is to qualify people who have a view of scripture that is clearly divergent from the church tradition, is clearly divergent from what the apostles thought, is fundamentally different from what the church teaches, what the apostles thought and handed over to the church and those people are unwilling to change after much discussion and um, you know interaction and all that when such people are unwilling to change after such people have been you know spoken to and everything now and not just that they're unwilling to change right when they now go ahead to organize a movement 
when they begin to organize a movement, a schismatic movement contrary to the body. And they try to organize a movement, you know, that is standing in contradiction to the body based on that doctrine. Then the church calls them heretics. Do you understand that? So they are unwilling to change and they organize a movement contrary to the church. That's what the church considers a heresy traditionally. So the fact that we have differences in predestination, thought, differences in thoughts on predestination, you know, those kinds of things, and we're depicting it and trying to find out, you know, we should not be hasty to throw the word heretic at people. You know, we should not be in a hurry to throw the word heretic at people. It's something that, you know, is when someone wants to really stand up and divide the church and scatter the church in the name of this is the new church or this is what we're going to be doing now. That's when you can really define, you know, a group of a movement as a heretical movement. Are we together? All right. So, there's, there are like um, five popular heresies of the early church that I want to talk about. I'll just give you a, love, a little bit of the background context and what they were about. And then... Um, so we'll be up and then we'll, we'll take some lessons that we learn from all these things that happened. The first thing I want to talk about is something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And the reason why I'm starting from it is because the combination of Gnosticism being a, you know, an issue in the church is something that came later in the third century thereabouts. You know? It's something that came much later in the third century, fourth century. That's when it became something very, you know, popular in the church and all that, when you had a lot of Christian Gnosticism and everything like that. But I'm starting with it because there are a lot of thoughts in Gnosticism that, um, there are a lot of thoughts in Gnosticism that, Gnosticism as a a thing predates Christianity. And there are a lot of Gnostic thoughts in some of the other heresies that came about earlier. So Gnosticism and Docetism are two things that I need to really talk about to give you a kind of philosophical context of these competing worldviews that were at, you know, available in the, in, the, you know, in the world of antiquity at the time. So that you can have an idea of how things were going, and I'll talk about the others. Are we together? So Gnosticism basically is a kind of religion. It's hard to, they have different types of Gnosticism. It's, a, it's an umbrella. But they have some core fundamental ideas that I'm going to talk about. But they have different variations inside of their different sects. So, but I'm going to give you the core idea of what it's about. And the core idea of what Gnosticism is about is basically a religion that believes in salvation by knowledge. So it's very interesting. So let me give you the gist, roughly. So Gnostics basically believe that this physical world, everything material, is evil that is bad, that is a privation of the good, that there is a good which is the supernatural God who is good, and God is the good and is the source of all things. And the privation of God, when something moves away from God, when there is an emanation and there is a reduction in the quality of God's emanation, so to speak, the farther away you move from God, the more you move into physical matter. Do you understand? So that means that God is the good is on one side. Physical matter is on the other side. So physical matter is evil. Everything about physical matter is evil. Do you understand that? And so God is good. So that means that our bodies are evil. Everything that we have, everything that we touch, physical, everything in this physical world is evil. And so they believed that for you to get to salvation, to become one with God, the good, you have to have some knowledge. It is that knowledge 
once you that's why they call it gnosticism it's actually a word that comes from gnosis i'm very sure everybody knows what gnosis is that's what it means it's salvation by knowledge that once you have that special revelation knowledge of god of the good what happens is that that special revelation changes you because you have it it changes you and makes you an enlightened being so that you are going to have that salvation and you are going to be one with the good do you understand that but if that was where the problem stopped you know that's that problem is you know that already sounds problematic but the problem is more than that we the time we begin to talk about the implications of these ideas a lot of problems so now this is where now this is where you now begin to see a lot of problems so they now begin to say how did this creation come about to be that means that they now say that this creation came about to be by the work of a demiurge a demiurge is from the greek word a a workman an artisan a, a, a skilled worker people like that mold stuff and everything but that word over time was reclaimed by Gnostics to mean an entity that is like a sub-divine entity to God. And that sub-divine entity is bad. And that sub-divine entity is the one that created everything. It was not meant to create anything. But that sub-divine entity now created everything in this world. And so that sub-divine entity that created everything in this world is by creating everything in this world, he created evil. And so all of us having bodies and everything that um, we have evil because that entity, the demiurge, is a bad person, right? And basically, we are going to be saved and be united with one when a certain Messiah will come into this creation and give us that special knowledge. And that special knowledge is what we are now going to use to become saved, that we can now be united with um the true with the God, with the good. Do you understand that? Now, the different Gnostics versions have different kinds of variations, but this is the core idea. For example, there were certain Gnostics that believed the like antinomian Gnostics. Those ones believed that Jehovah was a demiurge. That that's why he created the physical world, and he did not want Adam and Eve to know what is good and evil is. And so he's also Jehovah and Yahweh. And so that's why he created the law of Moses to repress people and all that, to repress their knowledge of the good and all those kinds of things. So he, he did all those things to, to repress their knowledge of the good. And so one of the ways that you can have special knowledge is that you have to break away from every kind of the law of Moses. And so break it. So one thing about the Antinomanian Gnostics was that them, they were mad at orgies. They used to do orgies. They used to do those now stupid things. Anything that is like the law of Moses, they broke away from it. So all those knowledge is supposed to make you escape one with the God, basically. So, now, this Gnostic idea, scholars have tried really hard. They've been working on it for a very long time to try and trace where it came from. For a long time, people thought that Gnosticism was like a heresy of Christianity. But scholarship is unanimous now that Gnosticism predates Christianity by many centuries. And the current consensus is, is tilting to it, it probably started as a syncretism from Babylonian times. After you know, after um, Cyrus was conquered and everything, so it was from that time we began to see traces of that Gnostic religion when there was a melting pot of all these Islam religions coming together. That that idea began to flourish and all that. So, but you shall see it all around the whole place in the Mediterranean. And so it predates the time of Christianity. It has a lot of Greek influences because the, the use of the words like demiurge and all those kinds of things. There's a lot of Platonic thoughts also in there. You know, in Gnostic thoughts, a lot of um, 
platonic thoughts, all kinds of things in there. But basically, that idea is unique to them. That idea that everything physical is evil, that this world is sin, that this physical world is dirty, is sin, and this our body self is sin. We're not, we're not supposed to have it. We're supposed to be one in a spiritual realm with God. So everything we should be doing is strive to escape this physical world. And the way we escape this physical world is by having certain kind of knowledge. That knowledge will now help us to escape. So Gnostic, in fact, Antinomenal Gnostics even go as far as saying that all the people that were vilified in the Old Testament, like King, people in Sodom and Gomorrah, and all those people, that they're going to also be, they're actually good people because it was the Diamond Jehovah that suppressed them. Do you understand? And made them look like bad people. Meanwhile, those people had some special revelation knowledge that Jehovah was holding them back from and all those kinds of things. Do you understand? So that was the context. Now, so that's the basic idea of Gnosticism. That's the core idea. But it now has different variations among different groups. So there is Christian Gnosticism. And Christian Gnosticism believes that Jesus was the Messiah that was sent by the good to come and deliver us from this evil world by giving us special knowledge, that by receiving that knowledge, we can escape. And Jesus is the son of the good God, not the son of Jehovah. And Jesus' knowledge will help us overthrow Jehovah. Do you understand? Because Jehovah is a God that created the law and made everybody feel bad and judged people and all those kinds of things. Do you understand that? So, and so that's where all these Gnostic writings come from. When you talk, I have heard about Gnostic Gospels. That's where those people that had those Gnostic ideas, they began to write certain gospel accounts, like I always tell you guys, like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Mary, and all those crazy things that Dan Brown put in his books that he wrote later in the third and fourth century. A lot of those schools were recently discovered in somewhere called Nag Hammadi, Nag Hammadi, 1945, in, um, in Egypt, where a lot of those schools were put together. And that's where they're going to find that not the Gnostic thoughts they had. So Christian Gnostics began to write their own funny gospel accounts. You know those kind of things now. They began to write their own funny gospel accounts and all those kinds of things. So you have a lot of um, the Gnostic gospels. So this basic idea has always been around, even before Christianity came. So that's where Gnosticism is. It just takes the form of any religion that is around. But that core idea that this physical world is evil and we escape it by knowledge, not by any other thing. By knowing certain things, we escape it. And anybody can escape it if they have that knowledge. No matter irrespective of where you are from, any religion, once you have that knowledge, you can escape it and become part of the good. And you can escape this physical form. Like this physical world is not meant to exist because it is evil. Because it is a privation, it's a corruption of the good. Because the good is supernatural, that's God. But the farther away you get from the good, you get into the physical world. So matter itself, physical matter is evil. Do you guys understand that? So this idea has always been around before Christianity. First century, second century, third century. So we now had Christian Gnostics and we had all that going around. Do you understand that? So let me tell you some other things. Let me give me to say some other specific things um, about um, Gnosticism. For example, Gnosticism believes it above the scriptures because it's about special revelation. So scriptures, what is a scripture? Near Gnosticism. It's about superior knowledge. Do you understand? So Gnosticism sets itself above the scriptures. It believes that it has internal knowledge. They don't, they don't proselytize. They don't preach. They believe that it's not even everybody that will be escaped into that eternal thing. It's some people. Some people, together with the demiurge, they will go into a kind of purgatory place. And then some other people, they shall have all kinds of messed up ideas, different kinds of messed up ideas. So, um, another thing, another thing about them is that they were very ascetic people. 
So because they believe that this world is evil, many of them believe that, you know, deprive yourself of this world. You don't take things in this world seriously. You don't dwell too much on this physical world because everything about this physical world anyway is what evil. Do you understand? So they believe that this physical world is not real. It's a privation of the good. So it's not really, it's not a real thing. It's just an illusion. They hated the material world and were very elitist. So they believed in special revelation. Those people that have special revelation are the ones that will be, you know, that will have salvation. Do you understand that? Now, there's another idea called docetism. And this one actually started from the time of the apostles. And so, this is what I was telling you that many of these things, we know the way ideas and philosophies are. They have this way of overlapping among themselves. So there's something called docetism. And this one was always around since the time of um, the apostles. And what docetism fundamentally believes, because this whole pagan idea. Now, so there's a general pagan idea. I'm sorry? Yes, another heresy. So the first one I've talked about Gnosticism, have you? There's another one called Docetism. They have some places where they overlap. But this is what Docetism means. Now, in the ancient pagan world, just like Gnostics tend to believe, there was a general idea that the, the spiritual world is superior to the natural world. The spiritual world that is immaterial, like Plato says, the good is in the Platonic realm, and the physical world is like an emanation of the Platonic realm. And so, because of that, the gods, when they come to earth, they don't get mixed up in this physical matter because it's like beneath them, because this physical matter is rubbish. So that idea now crept into Christianity, and people began to say that Jesus did not have a physical body. That because the physical body is beneath Jesus. Right? That physical body is beneath Jesus. But rather, Jesus had an illusion of a physical body. Everybody around him thought he had a physical body, but that body was not really physical. So there were also two strains of docetism. There are people that even believe that he was not born, that could not have been born of a woman. That he just appeared and everybody thought that he was born. I don't even know how they fixed that error. But they just didn't, be, didn't believe he was born of a woman. One of the one of the um, the um, mentors of one of the mentees of the Docetus guy, he, he evolved it and said, okay, he was actually born of a woman, but the body was not like a real body like our own. Because this kind of body, you know, is not um is not a it's not a good thing. So this is the thing about Docetism right um he has a very low view of the human body he thinks of it as eerie and icky like this human body is not good it's not something that the gods would have and everything and so he crept into, into christianity and there were a lot of people that actually believed that jesus did not really have a physical body so that means that jesus did not really really you know it begins to raise up questions about whether jesus really died for our sins you know whether he actually died bodily for our sins and all those kinds of things Do you understand so Basically, that's what docetism. It is different from Gnosticism, but they have some ideas that tend to overlap. Namely, the idea that this physical body of ours is a kind of evil. It's not, it's not a good thing. Do you understand? Now, so, let me go into the heresies that were movements. Do you understand? The first one I'll start, the one first one I'll talk about is called Marcionism. It was started by a guy called Marcion. His father was a bishop in the church, and, um, um, I've forgotten where they say he was born, but you know he was around around 140 AD. He moved into Rome, and he was a rich he was a rich man. He was a rich ship. He was a very rich ship owner, 
and his name was Marcion. So in 140, we know that he moved into Rome and he was even probably considered a bishop. Now, um, what did Marcion believe? And what Marcion believed was very interesting. Marcion had some seemingly Gnostic tendencies. And what he believed was that, number one, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not the same. That the God of the Old Testament was an evil entity. Do you understand? That the God of the Old Testament was an evil entity. And that the God of the New Testament was, um, was good. And that's what Jesus came to represent. That he came to represent the God of the New Testament and everything. Marcion was not big on theology, on reconciling the incoherence of his theology. His own is that he doesn't know what he was saying. So he believed that Jehovah, Yahweh, was a demiurge of sorts. And that Jesus came to overthrow him by being the son of the real good God. And so the God of the Old Testament is not really God. And the people of the Old Testament did not really know the difference. Are you hearing? Are you hearing? <laughs> so, um, so the, guy, the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, and the reason why he was not good is because he used to judge a lot of people. He used to kill people. And he was not nice. Meanwhile, the God, one of the things that they were very, were very popular for saying was that the God of the Old Testament told them to stone an adulterous woman. But Jesus told them not to stone an adulterous woman. But you know that's not what the Bible actually says. You know Jesus did not say they should not stone him. He said those that without stone should cast the first stone. So he was not really very good at theology. But his own was that he was sure angry with the Old Testament's God. He just did not like that God. That God did not look like a nice person. So that docetism and Gnosticism thing began to enter his brain too. And then he began to see all those things. So he began to see stuff like that. He also had docetist... Um, in, um, inclinations. They also believed that Jesus' body was not really a real physical body and all that, you know, that kind of thing. That's where he began to say things like, um, um, and that's why Jesus did not really physically down the cross or something like that. And Jesus did not really physically down the cross. And that's why you're going to see why there was a lot, that's why Islam is basically a Christian heresy. Because there are a lot of these heretical ideas that were being seeped among the masses. And by the time you now think about the fact that Arabia far away Christians were going there, missionary, and a lot of Christians that they don't have a pastor, nobody taught them where they're just Christians, you know, they don't carry all kinds of funny things, and those things were the milieu that um, Muhammad grew up in, and then he put all those things together. So the idea that Jesus did not die, but it was someone else's face that died, is that since Marcion's time, that's when they started saying things like that. Those things, those funny ideas were around. Do you understand? So we believe that the God of the Old Testament was a demiurge that was bad, and Jesus came to overthrow him by showing us the true love of God. So this impulse to separate God of the Old Testament and from the New Testament has been since... We're talking about um, 144 AD. So, you know what 144 AD is? I'm talking about the apostles died 90 AD, 80 AD. I mean, those are when they died. Jesus died 33 AD. Do you understand? The apostles did ministry 40, 50 years after that. Do you understand? People like Apostle Paul, I think Apostle Paul said died maybe like 70-something or 80-something AD. Their sons were still alive. So the people after so it was immediately after that age that we have this Marcion thing coming up. So the impulse to separate the God of the Old Testament from the New Testament has been strong since the beginning. So do you know what he did? One of the things that he did was that he was a strong anti-Semite. He hated Jews because of that. Because he said that the ones that killed Jesus and all that, number one. Because he was a Greek person. No, he was from Phrygia. Yeah, Greek. I think it was not Phrygia. He was from where was he from? Let me write it down write it down. But he was, you know, so he was an anti-Semite, was a strong anti-Semite. Another thing that he did was that he deleted the entire Old Testament from our canon. You know, Christians were reading the Old Testament like I told you guys last week. 
Christians were reading the Old Testament. They said they should delete that Christians should not read the Old Testament. They deleted all the Gospels except the book of Luke because Luke was not written by a Jew. Then that book of Luke, all those parts in the beginning about referring to Jewish culture, all those parts in the beginning, first five, six chapters, he deleted all those parts. He deleted some parts in between. Then he kept only Paul's letters, 10 of Paul's letters. And those Paul's letters, everywhere that Paul quoted the Old Testament, he deleted it. <laughs> everywhere Paul quoted the Old Testament, he deleted it. He did everything bashu bashu and said, This is the books, these are the books that we should be reading. So, like I told you guys, the early church was not, they don't used to call people heretics on time. They are very patient with people. So, something interesting now happened. I hope there's no problem. Are we good? Okay. So, um, in 144 AD, July 144 AD, the, the church in Rome, the presbytery in Rome invited um, Marcion and asked him to come. Marcion's father was a bishop. Marcion Marcion's father excommunicated his own son. So people think that maybe he had daddy issues too. Do you understand? Because his father was a bishop and his own father has communicated him too. Because they invited him and said he should come and explain himself. After he explained himself, ah, they said, no, this one does not make sense. You are not part of this church. Not, and this is the thing. They said, Marcion's theology was very bad. He was not very good at philosophy or putting together a coherent theology. But one thing he was good at was that he was rich and he knew how to organize. He was a fantastic organizer. So because of that, he was able to organize a movement and have a bunch of people that would follow him and all that. So he was very good at organizing. So he actually organized the movement and all that and everything. But, and you know, a lot of the church fathers actually responded to him. Justimata, Irenaeus, Tertullian, um, Hippolytus, they wrote. In fact, Tertullian has a book called um, Against the Marcionites, where he did apologetics against Marcion. All of the, all the church fathers bashed them thoroughly. And over time, one of the things that Marlon Marcion's problem also was that he was also a docetist. He believed in docetism. So I think his people did not used to marry. They didn't used to have sex. They didn't used to marry. So that's one of the things that even melts his heresy to die out, you know, that kind of thing. Praise God. Are we together? No, no don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Praise God. So um, his whole idea died out over time. So he was a strong dualist. He also believed in that the world is the world is you know physically evil and all that, and the um, spiritual world was better and everything. So he was a very very good organizer, and that's what helped his idea to flourish for as long as it did. But it died out naturally over time. One of the things that the early church really pointed out to him, and the church fathers really pointed out to him, which he did not see because of his bad theology was the fact that the, the, in the Old Testament, God speaks of his mercy probably even far many more times than he does in the New Testament. All the Old Testament prophets from David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, everybody talks about the mercy of God, his everlasting mercy over and over and over and over. This is a very, very fun fact that many people don't realize. And I got to learn this from um, studying um, a rabbi's commentary on the Old Testament. Did you know that all the capital punishments and tortures that way a person was um, deserving of under the law of Moses for doing evil were never carried out except once. Did you know that? Yeah. And, that, and the only person that was that, that death by stoning was Ikan. And if you read the story very well, it was like mob action. The, the, the entire body of 
Israel was very angry with, um, with um, what they call it, with Achan. And Joshua said, everybody stone him. But what you find is that if you want to look at the law of Moses, all the capital punishment for um, you commit adultery, they should stone you. You don't see it any happen. You see all those things that if you do something, you should be burnt alive. You abuse your father, you should be plucked. All those things never happened. Showing something, very interesting when I read it, was that even from the time of the old, what we see is that God is pointing to the fact of what the, what, what the, what the law is telling us is that it is pointing to what people deserve. But God's mercy never allowed people to even go through what they fully deserved. Because even under the old, what the law of Moses did was that it was showing you what people deserved for what they were doing. It showed what people duly deserved. But what people deserved was hardly ever carried out because of the mercy of God. Because of the mercy of God. And that's why you see that throughout the Old Testament, you see over and over the prophets, everybody, they talk about the mercy of God. Your mercy is everlasting. Your mercy is this. Your mercy is that. Your mercy is David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, everybody, Daniel, everybody, everybody. Your mercy is this. Your mercy. So they, even Jonah was angry with God for not calling out the just judgment for a wicked people. So, Marcion was completely wrong. And so that's why, please, this impulse to look, to read the law of Moses outside of context, outside of what happened, and to look at it outside of the prophets, and you don't read the law and the prophets, and try to think that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from Jesus, is funny. It's very, very funny. It's something that we should be very weary of. This Marcionistic impulse is a very strong one, and is a strain that keeps repeating itself. It keeps coming. It keeps coming in every generation. It keeps coming in every generation. This tendency to want to separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and find the kind of explanation based on your current world philosophy that is popular to explain away the Old Testament. So in Marcion's time, he used docetism and the influences of Gnosticism by saying things like um, the Old Testament was a demiurge and all that. In the New Testament, we use things like saying uh, the Old Testament people did not know what they were doing. They did not know what was happening. It was, de- it was devil. It was angels. So we are, it's actually Marcionism, but with contemporary Gnosticism. So every time you say something happened in the Old Testament, it's devil. It's not today. Marcion has been saying this is the one. He just used, he called it something else, based on what was available at his time. That same idea, that same Marcionistic tendency is in a lot of all these progressive Christianity and all those kinds of things. So that impulse is completely unnecessary. It's completely unnecessary. Jesus says that the God of the law and the prophet is his father, that him and that God are one. The problem is that a lot of people don't understand the Old Testament. A lot of people read the Old Testament as if they're reading, um, you know, reading this thing. What the Old Testament shows us is what people justly deserve. It, like I told you guys some Sundays ago, it is pointing to something above itself. It points to something above itself. You must read the Old Testament understanding what it is pointing to. So everywhere that Jesus says, if a man does this, he should get this. You now read the Old Testament, you see they don't actually do it for anyone. I mean, think about it. Moses that wrote the Old Testament had a hidden wife. When the Bible tells them that if you're going to have a hidden wife, you don't understand that. And then when his own people complained about it, 
God judged them for it. So the law was pointing to higher things. There's a reason why you don't see stories in the Old Testament of the prophets telling them to stone people. There's a reason why you don't see stories of them telling them to decapitate people. Because the law tells people what they deserve. But the mercy of God was ever present. Such that what people truly deserve is the everlasting mercy. And so that is the mentality behind the way the prophets kept hyping the mercy of God. So when the people under the law and the prophets were shouting that you have, your law is, your mercy is everlasting, your mercy is okay, you are a kind God, you are slow to anger, tender in mercy. The people under the old were saying God is tender in mercy and is slow to anger. But you, in the New Testament, you are angry for them and you are saying their God is wicked. What's your problem? David said his own God is tender in mercy and kind. You, you said his God is wicked. What's your problem? Because David understood very well. I've taken somebody's wife. Normally, normally, they're supposed to take me. But his mercy stepped in. And they all knew. They all knew. They were very aware of it. Are we together? So please, this messianistic tendency to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament, look at one other thing that he did. Very interesting, which is also instructive. Is that he said, deleted the Old Testament, picked out some parts in the New Testament, deleted all the parts that are deleted in the Old Testament and all that. You know, that's very interesting. The guy no grief for the book of Hebrews. He did not agree. You know, it's very instructive. When we are looking at the New Testament today, and the parts that we don't like, we use a Messi's legover around it. And we do again, 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 just to try to paint a picture of a God of the New Testament that is read from the Old. Because of lack of home training, we cannot with our chest come out and say, stop reading this. Because 2,000 years of Christianity, you cannot come now and say, delete some books. You cannot. It's too late. But what we'll now do is you now begin to suggest and people find them, themselves not reading certain books. They find themselves skipping certain parts of the New Testament in their minds. It's Marcion without the Marcion. Yes, you will skip some parts in your mind. There are some books you are not reading. You begin to say things like, eh, James did not really understand the gospel. Paul understood he eats more because he was the one that saw Jesus and God said the mystery was committed unto him. But James and Joe did not really understand. They were still being influenced by the law. All those things you are doing, that's what Marcion did. But at that time, Christianity was still very young. The structure was not strong. So it was easy for him, because he was a big man, to delete the books and get followers. Many people today, if they were born in Marcion's time, they would have done the same thing. They would have deleted the Old Testament. They would have deleted the book of Hebrews, deleted James, deleted John, deleted Peter. Which other one is problematic? Revelation, out. It will love all those things. The Gospels that have been too... If the, if the wala of any part of the Gospel is too much like this, I yawn in here straight. I guess going to have sense to you. <laughs> it they shock you? Eh? Okay. Praise God. Are we together at church? So the early church fathers really, really did elaborate work to debunk Marcionism and they died out naturally. Justin Martyr... Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Tertullian, they all wrote extensively against Marcionism and they died out naturally. Hallelujah. Then, then comes the next heresy. This one came around the 150s to 170s. 
AD. So you can see it's very early, very early. And this one is called Montanism. And this Montanism started from the area called Phrygia. There was this guy called Montanius. I've been using Montanius. Mont Montan something, sha. And then and he had two followers, Prisca and Mark Maximilla. And basically, their own doctrine was that God the Father was God of the Old Testament. God the Son was God of the Gospels. Now, God the Spirit is the one as work. So they believe that every, the three parts of the three gods or the three persons of God had their own dispensation, their own time. So God the Father has done his own. He's chilling now. God the Son has done his own. In the time of the apostles, he has chilled now. He's now in heaven. But now the Holy Spirit is the one what, at work. So he's the one that is running things now. So they were very charismatic guys. And so they were given to severe prophecy. That's their work. They were prophets. Prophets. And the way they used to prophet, they, we, have some, we, know we have some records of some of their prophecies from early church fathers writing about them. So the way they used to prophet is the prophesy is that them, they don't even to say, thus says the Lord. Them, they believed that they, were, that they were oracles of God, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking through them. So they don't say, thus says the Lord. They will say, I am the Father. And I say to you, some of you think I'm a wolf in sheep clothing, but I am not. I, if you read their prophecies, eh? hey God, this Christianity has not changed since the war, no. It sounds like that thing that we used to, that some people used to say in chapel that time when we were in school. It sounds, it sounds. Ah, should I read out? Should I read out? Let me see if I can find. Um, let me see if I can find one one for you. I will, let me look for one for you. I'll read. I'll read some from. Um, you will see the you will see the way they were, they were read, and then the early church fathers used to abuse them for that thing. They said that they were given to initial bouts of catatonia and quietness, and then they burst into severe mania and, and craziness. And you know they said a lot of kind of things for them. But this was the one was that they always prophesied. The one is that they used to prophesy. They believed that the Holy Spirit was running now, so they used to prophesy all kinds of things. They will they prophesy that um, a war is about to start. They will prophesy all kinds of things. So basically, that was what their work was. And so, um, hang on. I'm trying to see if I can get it for you. Good. Um, let me see if there's something here I can read to show you what they sounded like. Chronology. I'm coming. One minute. Another thing about them was that they were ascetic people. They believed that the Holy Spirit does not move in people that have sex because sex is a bad thing. So the three of them were virgins. Even though there were some rumors that Prisca, for example, was married once and she had stopped and she had, dis you know, had left her husband. So, um, um, Montenos, that's the guy's name. So, but basically, that's what they believed. They believed that, see, if you have sex, the Holy Spirit will not speak to you very well. So they were very ascetic people. You don't have sex, so the Holy Spirit can speak to you. And the three of them believed that they were the ones that were the mouthpieces of God. Church out together. So they believed that their prophecy was superior to scripture. There's nothing like um, scripture and all that. The Holy Spirit is the one now. Do you understand? The Holy Spirit is the one now. That kind of thing. 
So a lot of the church fathers actually thought that they were possessed by evil spirits because there was even a story of one of the church fathers trying to cast out the demon from them, but they did not come for the deliverance session. So they said, um, <laughs> you guys are laughing. <laughs> um, I'm coming. I'm trying to look for the place where, um, where, they, um, where, where they give an example. So, for example, someone, was, someone told them what Apostle Paul said, that the spirit of the subject is prophet, subject to the prophet. And Montenegro said, ah, the Lord has sent me as the chooser, the revealer, the interpreter of this labor, this promise and this covenant, being forced willingly or willingly to learn the gnosis of God. I don't even understand what he said. All I know is that he said, the spirit is the one working now. So the spirit is in charge. So, and the spirit of Christ is sorry to the prophet here is not the spirit. When the spirit is in charge, you cannot be subject because the spirit is the enforcer. Hallelujah. Praise God. There are so many things. So a lot of apologies were, were done by the early church fathers to show that, you know, that it was wrong and everything. He said all kinds of things. He said, I mean, the fact, let me not take too much time talking about it. Basically, you know, that's what happened to them. Now, this is what killed them. Guess what killed them? They now prophesied that Jesus was coming at a particular time in a particular place. Again, that when Jesus is coming back, He's coming back at a particular time in a particular place. So everybody was hyped. And this is the funny thing about emotionalistic stuff, like I was telling you. Emotionalism is good, but the excess of it is sweet and it's deceiving. Because emotionalism can have the, the external manifestation, like something real is happening here when nothing is being happening there. So they actually got people to follow them. But they, unfortunately for them, they now prophesied that God will, Jesus will come back in a certain place at a certain time. I hear what I'm saying to you. Guess what? When the day arrived, Jesus did not come. Hallelujah. When the day arrived, Jesus did not come. And so, if you prophesied all your life that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you, that you are the one in charge, and then the Holy Spirit now did not show, as you said, what do you think will happen? Everybody go back to their father's house. So, yeah. So that's how, um, so that's how that ended. Praise God. Church out together. Please don't be too distracted. We're almost done. So, praise God. So, yeah. So that's how Montan. That's how Montanus, Montanus's movement. That's how we ended. He died a natural death in the second century. The professor that just will come and Jesus did not come, and everybody went back to their father's house. <laughs> Abi, you know, pastors like that, and it makes sense because a lot of movement like that too have come and gone. That said, Jesus is coming Saturday day. When Jesus did not show, what will happen? Go back to our father's house. So. One last one that is very important, second century, is the, the heresy of modalism. So it has like five or six different names based on different people's idea. So different people had the idea. It's a natural impulse also. So we see a lot of impulses that Christians have today have always been since day one. So a lot of people were also espousing it in those days. And so that's why it had different kinds of names. So it was called Sabellianism, modalism, praxianism, the teachings of Noetos, Patripazianism, which, which just means the doctrine that Jesus, God, the Father, was the one that died on the cross. Basically, what modalism means is that there is God the Father, that there's only, that God does not have three persons, but rather, he just manifests as three different persons. 
Do you understand? That God is one person, but manifests as three different persons. So when you begin to see an, an analogies for the Trinity, Trinity like um, God is like water. He can come as ice. He can come as steam. He can come as liquid water. But it is still God the Father. It's a very foolish analogy. Please don't ever use it. So that's what modalism basically was. And so they said, you know, at every point in time, God just manifests as two different persons. So it sounds kind of, it's an impulse that sounds easy, right? It makes it kind of easy to understand the idea of God in three persons. Because from day one, Christians were aware. So you know those foolish things about people saying Trinitarian doctrine was a Constantinian idea and all that. See, from that time, people like Hippolytus and Tertullian and all the church fathers already cleared them. They already knew, just that they did not form the word Trinity. But they always knew that God was three persons, distinct people, but they were of the same substance and of the same essence. But modalism was like that. There are three different people. So they tried to use that to make it easy for them to understand. And like I told you guys, the issue of the Trinity is a paradox. What it means is that we don't see how it, how it coheres based on our plane of existence, but we have the evidence for it. So it is at best a paradox. And it makes sense. Because if there's nothing paradoxical about God, the creator of the universe, and we, with our 1.2 kg brains, can understand everything about God, you know that God, that means that we and God are on the same level. Do you understand that? There is no way you guys need to understand that and settle that now in your minds. You cannot understand everything about God. What is necessary for you to understand, Jesus has revealed to us. From that time, Jesus has always been telling us, and this kind of, this is not, in, is not in your father's, my father does not want you to know. Focus on God. If Jesus has always been suggested, there are some things that you cannot know. You cannot even know, even if they bring, if Jesus comes and says, oh, yeah, thick, you will just sit and you just go crazy. Don't forget what Paul tells us, that he's God that was in light that nobody can approach. So yes, a lot of things will be paradoxical because we don't understand them. And I use the kind of analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's to help you understand it. If my three-year-old daughter that doesn't understand how telecommunication works, if she sees me on TV, as in streaming YouTube, right? And I go upstairs while she's streaming YouTube, she will be confused about how her dad is in the TV and standing next to her at the same time. Do you understand? Now, it's just a rough analogy to make you understand. But it's only confusing to her. It's only a paradox to her because she does not want understand it. It's the same way. Based on our own plane of existence, how one person can be three people and all the three of them be one at the same time, like a tesseract that has many ships and all that, you know, like an ant in one plane that cannot see three dimensions. It's the same thing also. Hallelujah. But modernism tried to dumb it down to make it easy for people to understand. So they told themselves that God just am so and all that. And so one of the implications of that is that God the Father was God the Son on the earth. And it was God the Son that was crucified on the cross. So every part where Jesus would say, I'm talking to my Father, and the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, modernism says that Jesus was acting for us. That it was him that was standing. But it was also him that came down on himself. So he was just demonstrating. In the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was praying, he was just dramatizing for us so that we can know that there's another part of him that will be also that will happen when he crucify and go to heaven. Don't worry about it, but that's how they believed. They believed everything was drama. When, when a loud voice from heaven spoke to, um, um, to Jesus and said, this is my beloved son. So Jesus was there, but it was also him that was telling himself, 
this is my beloved son. You know those kinds of... So, but, so when Jesus now went, he sent the Holy Spirit, but it was also him that is the Holy Spirit. So he was not in heaven, but he's in us. But when we look to heaven, he's also in heaven. He lives inside of us. Of course, you can imagine. People like Tetulan, Hippolytus, the early church fathers, they, they trashed it. They trashed it. Origin did a very good apologia to really explain, you know, try to talk about the Trinity and all that and all that. And so it was that explanation that Origin, like I told you guys, that calcified over the series and led to the doctrine of Arius. Do you understand that? Origin was the one that really began to explain how that the Father had their three distinct persons and everything. But by the time he got to the time of Arius and his teachers, they began to say that, okay, there are three. So them, they wanted to correct modalism. But they did not know how to appreciate the paradox of three people being one. So Arius' solution was to say, God created God the Son, and the Spirit is a force. Which is a classic Arian idea that even Jehovah's Witnesses have. In order to make modalism, to make the, the paradox of the Trinity more palatable for human minds, they now say there's God the Father, He created God the Son, and the, God the Holy Spirit is a what? A force that comes out of us, which is clearly wrong. Jesus tells us the Holy Spirit is a person, He is a comforter, He is a paraclete. He is a person. He is a person from day one. Even before the Jews were able to understand, because Jesus was not around to explain it to them, they already noticed. Somewhat, somehow they just knew that in the beginning he said, let us create. He spoke a word. The Father was watching and the Spirit hovered over the water. These people did not even have Jesus. Long before anybody can start cooking up, do you understand? Long before anybody can start cooking up, they already know, let us, it is us. It is, we are many. We are three. One of the common criticisms that people always say is, um, how do you know that there's no another, Muslims always use that a lot, so that how do we know that there won't be another fault? You understand? If God comes down and Jesus comes down and tells us there is fault, we accept. But based on where we are now, it's three. Hallelujah. Based on what we know now, there are what? Three. So, that's how the doctrine of um, um, you know modalism worked, and it was a Trinitarian heresy, and so you know um, made it easy for people, and so they said everything about everything was acting, everything was acting. God was always the one, you know, God was always the one manifesting in three different places and all that, and they had some pretty seemingly smart ways of resolving the problem. They say since God is omnipresent, God can be speaking to Himself and say, "This is my beloved Son," while He's also here being the one baptized. Do you understand? So he can be saying, I am a father, I one. But it just means that it's still him in the same place, you know, all those kinds of things. So, but it doesn't follow what the scripture says. So, and the scripture has given us the evidence for it. How it connects is not really for us to really understand because God is not our mate. Everybody say God is not our mate. <laughs> so how, because God is not a man like us. To expect to say, because you don't understand, God is in a place where time and space does not God created time and space. The standard by which you are using to say the Trinity does not make sense is based on spatial temporal standards. 
it is when you are in space time that you can say uh, three people cannot be the same and be one do you understand it's when you are in space time you can say that you are like an ant in two dimension that is working on only a flat surface of paper that does not know that there is a third, third dimension if you tell the if you tell that ant that there's a stack of books of 60 leaves if the if the if you tell the ant that there's a book of 60 leaves you should find a place to put them do you know the ants will say and imagine an ant that's only in two directions you know the ants will say the ants will say you should arrange all the 60 leaves on the floor flat because he only knows going forward and going sideways so if you want if he's going to interact with 60 leaves book all the pages have to be arranged flat on the floor so he'll be reading them the first page second page third page fourth page fifth page sixth page until he covers the entire two dimension but for us in three dimension a book to you you will stack it up so if you tell the ants that where you are standing now there are plenty pages of the book above you the ants go they say which he says above you which is a it's above you what is an above he cannot understand because it is not in his dimension so the kind of things that we use to limit the trinity are things based on our own plane of existence. But God has shown us that there is something higher than our plane of existence. It's like, it's like trying to argue against the fact that um, God exists out of time. That God does not grow old. You know, how is that possible? How can somebody not grow old? Does it make sense to you? In the same way, you cannot use the same anthropomorphic standards to judge the creator of space-time. So it's that simple. Praise God. So please, the impulse to try to bring God down to our level, to make it easy for yourself to understand, please kill that, you know, to make the Trinity easy for yourself to understand, please kill that impulse. Don't try to either make Jesus a creation to make it easy for yourself or try to make God to be acting um, Julius Caesar with one actor. You don't need to do that either. Just follow what the scripture says. What does Jesus tell us? I am the Father of what? One. The Father is in heaven, I'm here. As I see my Father do, so I also do. But I'm going now, and I will give you the Holy Spirit, and He will be with you even to the end of the world. world. Simple. Three persons, one substance. Three persons, one substance, one essence. And so what makes God God is His essence. Do you understand? There is the divine essence. What makes God God is His essence. So Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. God the Father is God. They are not more better than each other because you cannot be better than God. If anything is better than God, then that thing that's better than God is better is what? God. Do you understand? Do you understand that? And if you are less than God, then you are not God again. So that's why the three of them are equal. They, can, they cannot be superior in essence. If any of them is superior or inferior in essence, in fact, that means none of them are God. Because that means that it's conceivable that there's something still greater than three of them. Do you understand what I just said now? So the three of them are equal. Yet, there are three different persons and they are subordinates. That's why equality does not mean, um, subordination does not apply inequality. <laughs> That's why subordination does not imply inequality. The fact that Jesus is subordinate to the Father, that means that Jesus says, what the Father does is what I do, does not mean that Jesus is inferior to the Father. The same way man and woman are equal before God, but in a marriage, the woman submits to her what? Husband. Do you understand that? 
So subordination does not imply inequality. That's why if even in the Godhead there is subordination, then in the family units there must be subordination. There must be. There must be. Church, out together. If you are paying attention to all I said, and you know this is not the time where we can really go into it, maybe one of these days in our hangouts we will really go into more details or some finer details of all the different heresies. But if I trust you guys to, I can send you guys some links on the church page so that you can um, read up on them and also, you know, get to know them better. But there's something that you see here. The impulses to think in certain ways have always been. That's why I said something on Twitter some days ago. I don't know if you guys saw it. When I said, it's a very Gnostic idea to say, sin is in the body. My spirit is pure. So when I commit sin, it's my body that commits sin. So my spirit does not commit nothing like that. <laughs> that is Gnosticism. It's just Gnosticism that has not gone to school very well. It is not true. Man is spirit, soul, and what? Body. On judgment day, God will not say, I'm judging your body. Your spirit is okay. Keep the spirit. Your body, I'm judging it. His body that used to commit fornication, ah, man, no pa. There's nothing like that. Abi, have you seen someone that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, and it's only his mind that got saved. His spirit was not saved. His body was not saved. Have you seen it before? What is the heart that you believe unto salvation? How do you believe in your heart and your entire man is redeemed? You are not righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Because man is spirit. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to teach more on this from beginning from upper Sunday. Man is spirit, soul, and body. You cannot separate it. In fact, the place where the spirit stops and the soul starts, you don't know. Nobody knows. The place where spirit stops and, and soul, and soul, that's the heart, the mind, the intellect, where it starts. The place where pure consciousness, the one that is alive with Christ, and the place where your, your, your heart, your intellect, your memories, and the place where your body, the place where they stop and start, you don't know. It's like a continuum. That is the reason why a person can have a brain damage and it will affect his ability to believe. Do you know what I just said now? Did you hear what I just said now? That's why a person can have mental illness and it will be difficult to teach the person the gospel. Because man is spirit, soul, and body. You cannot pick it. That's why when you are, when you are resurrected on judgment day, you will be resurrected with a body. Man is spirit, soul, and body. You cannot say, this is one part. I'm this way, nothing like that. You are spirit, soul, and body. Hallelujah. Do you understand that? So that's why you glorify God with everything about you. And that's why everything about you is righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus did not say, I've saved your spirit, but supernatural healing to heal your body is not your own because that body is sinful. Did you hear that in the Bible? You, you, sin is in your body, but it's with your hand you will lay hands on the sick to channel supernatural power. But sin is in your body, but it's your hand you are using to lay hands on the sick. To channel supernatural ability. Your spirit that is joined to the Lord is what? One spirit with him. So you are one spirit with God. But it's your hand that is healing people. How you won't take reason up? But it is your heart that believed. I hope you guys don't see those kind of things. Please, oh, there's nothing like sin is in my body. Oh, because of that. There's nothing like that. Oh. 
if you commit sins, if you are commit, if a person commits sin, you committed the sin. If a man is glorifying God, you are what? Glorify. How can you say sin is in your body? And your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You know what you think? That impulse to try to um, despise the natural and focus on the supernatural as that's where the good is, is a Gnostic tendency. But guess what? The Bible says that when he created everything, he said it was what? Good. Yahweh is not the demiurge. He is God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he created your body and he created all these things and said it was what? Good. So your body is not a bad thing. If your body is good enough for the Holy Spirit to dwell in, then it is a good stuff. So you take care of it. You don't despise it and say it's my spirit. It's our spirit. That's where good is. No. You say, um, that's why he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's not what he's saying. Number one, when, when we go into the series, you guys will understand. Number one, when he talks about the natures of man in the scriptures, you always have to read it in context. Because the word spirit and soul, oftentimes, is used to just describe to the inner man. So there are some places where the human being is described like a two, two-fold entity, body and inner man. There are some parts where it is clarified that it is three parts, that it is body, soul, and spirit. Do you understand that? There are some places where the word soul is used to describe both the inner man and the spirit. When you say things like my inner man, it's talking about your soul and spirit. Sometimes you use the word spirit. In the Old Testament especially, it's very common. In the Old Testament, the word spirit was used to qualify the entire inner man because they did not know the difference. It's in the New Testament that, you know, fine details begin to come out. When Mary begins to tell us that my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit prays, say, okay, ah, okay, okay, okay. Paul now says, ah, okay, your spirit, soul, and body will all be kept. Okay, okay, okay. And then Jesus begins, you don't begin, okay, yeah. It'd be like, say, ah, okay. Then the writer of people that tells us that, ah, it's for that spirit and soul and body. Now what did you say, okay, okay. So there's a difference. But normally, people don't know. All they know is that there's a physical body and there's an inner man. So you have to be very, very careful. So even when the Bible says that, the Bible says that the spirit is free, the spirit is willing and the flesh is willing. He's not talking about um, your spirit in that man is willing. Your flesh is willing. Where is the soul? No. In that context, he was actually talking about the inner man of a man that wants to do good, which is the common impulse. Like he says in Roman, ah, God, I'm, have I, I think I've gone off track now. We'll talk about it when we start um, the series on spirit, soul, and body. Are we together? Just get the point. Please. Don't fall for any Gnostic tendency to start thinking that this physical world is dirty and everything. No, it's not dirty. It's God that created it. And we understood. Do you guys understand what I've said? Do we have any questions? Time has gone. Does anybody have any questions? Are there people online? Uh, do people all have any questions? Thank you for listening to this message. We hope you were blessed. For more updates on our programs and audio messages, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at This Excellent Church. God bless you.